This is Empowered Human Academy. Welcome home. Everything you'll ever need is already inside of you, even on the days when that feels hard to believe. Empowered Human Academy exists to remind you of who you are, to help you stay close to what's possible right here in every breath. I'm Abe. And I'm Isaac. We're both on our own journeys of growth, and what we've learned so far is that empowerment is as unique as you are. Once you've discovered just how expansive you are inherently, the world opens up around you. As we begin to feel better, life begins to feel better, and what it means to be alive comes alive in a whole new way. While your path is uniquely yours, we're in this together. Listening to each other's stories helps us imagine how to access our own power to keep going. We're here to create a life that feels like ours, one that calls us onward and upward because we are living as ourselves, fully and only. These conversations are a part of that exploration and you're invited. So with hearts wide open, let's begin. Hello, Empowered Humans, and welcome back. We're really thrilled to be sharing this time here with you. Today's guest is someone whose work I've been reading and enjoying for years now, so I was deeply delighted when he said yes to having a conversation here on the podcast. David Melke is the creator of Wondermark, the inventively playful and poignant comic that you can find at wondermark.com. We've linked it in the show notes, so do yourself a huge favor and check it out after this. In addition to his creative endeavors with Wondermark, David was also co-editor of the Machine of Death series of fiction anthologies, also recommended, and is presently the director of games development at cut.com. Throughout this conversation, we discuss developing artistic taste, finding your audience, interacting with feedback, cultivating patience in the midst of process, and deriving your style from your work. Having been at this Wondermark expression for almost 18 years now, David's made it clear to the universe that he's here to develop his craft for the long game. He has some insightful reflections on process and building a creative life that he was generous to share with us, and we can't wait for you to hear them. So let's get into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Empowered Human Academy. Today, we are joined with David Melke, an artist and someone who Isaac has known for a long time. And I just recently, in the last couple of years, have gotten to get to know your art. David, how are you doing today? What is up? We're so excited to have you. How's it going? It's going great. I'm excited to be here. So thank you very much for having me. Of course. We begin always with a question of identity, and it's not the identity that you put forward when you're at a conference, when you're trying to make an impression, but when it's just you coming home to yourself, when it's just you being you, what words of identity feel like they fit? What words feel like home? Boo. I think, you know, I like to call myself a cartoonist. I feel like there's sort of a playfulness to that. And, you know, I work in comics and so, you know, obviously it makes sense, but I also think that there's, you know, as opposed to something like artist or graphic novels, these sort of very heady words, I feel like cartoonist implies a certain amount of frivolity, which I appreciate. Okay. So that's an identity word for you, which to me, and maybe this, you feel differently, but to me, this is a, like a big thing. Does that word show up in other places than just the medium of cartoons? Hmm. I think I would actually turn that around and say that because I've been doing comics for so long, it sort of subsumed itself into the rest of my identity. Please go on. <laughs> Where I feel like when I first started doing doing comics, you know, I was doing other things. I had other jobs. Eventually, there came a point when I was only doing everything I was doing related somehow to comics. And so it became uh, my my main deal in a way that it, from a professional standpoint, you know, it had to do with my employment and, and sort of my income. But because I was defining what that meant, it also meant that anything I was interested in could fold into that in some way. You know, there was nobody telling me what I could and couldn't do or could, could and couldn't make. So if I wanted to make a book of short stories or I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to make magnets or like I wanted to do something that was not really specifically related to comics, I could just sort of also do it and make it part of my thing. Yeah, yeah. And those things are not cartooning uh, necessarily, but I think the sense of myself as a cartoonist, I think, led to a broader definition of myself as a creator of things. And those things could be of any sort, it turns out. Totally. Hmm. The frivolity, the playfulness, which is transparently evident in everything that I've seen from your hand. Is that a sensibility that you've like had forever and you stumbled upon a thing that that really worked well in or? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I think I was the youngest of four kids, and I don't know if this is true of many other younger kids, but I was, I kind of had things a little easier. Like my parents retired by then. They're like, this is fine. You do what you want. It's okay. Oh, <laughs> like, right. We lost to five. I get that. <laughs> and so, you know, I just got to do a bunch of weird stuff. I had a bunch of grownups and older kids around so that I could, you know, I had like access to things. You know, my parents would take me to work with them. And so I was just kind of left to do my own thing. And I just amused myself a lot. And so I was always into humor. I was always into like making things and projects and, you know, writing stories and weird things like that. So I think when I gravitated toward comics, it was just in the service of another interesting thing to make. And then that happened to be one thing that turned into a longer term thing of many other things before that did not. It felt like a natural extension of the sorts of things I was doing anyway, which was just kind of messing around and telling jokes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You use the phrase like amuse yourself. And I wrote that down because that felt like it might be more significant than on the surface, mostly because of the comedy that I see in, in so much of, again, of what I've seen of what you make. And I want to be careful not to define you by what I see of you, but I'm curious about what humor has to do with anything as far as you as a person are concerned. Is that important? Oh, yeah. I mean, it feels like, you know, a little overwrought to be like, you know, talking about like the importance of humor in these trying times. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I just like to tell jokes. And I, I have been doing comics for long enough now that I have trained my brain to think in comics to a certain degree where like, I'll see a situation or I'll hear someone say something or something will happen in the world. And I'll just sort of understand it as a little narrative. And so I think, you know, pointing out the absurdity of things is sort of the humorist's goal, I think, in many ways. And what I try and do is say something that I don't think other people have said yet. Mm. Whether that's a joke that I just, just, just strikes me as funny or whether it's some observation about the world or people's behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's something that other people have already said, I feel like it's covered. But if it's something that I feel like I maybe have insight into, then that feels like something I want to explore. And then humor is the vehicle Mm -hmm. for that because humor and absurdity and you know is just things that people people like to look at jokes people like to see themselves reflected in absurd ways i found mm -hmm. and you know if it makes them feel seen it makes them feel like they can relate to the larger world and the larger world understands them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert then given that you're humor like humor <laughs> <laughs> that's such a weird question just because you know i feel like that's uh we've heard so much about like, you know, the introverts do this and the extroverts walk like this. And I think I am a friendly guy. I think I am a social guy, but I also am extremely exhausted by social situations in like one-on-one. -on -one. So I feel like I must fall somewhere between. I'm, I'm alone right now. So I have a wife and a kid and we uh, spend all of our time together every single day and it's great, but they are on vacation right now visiting family and I'm alone for the first time in about two or three years. Damn. And, you know, I like it, honestly. I don't want this for my whole life, but I like it at the moment. So I think there must be some some introversion in there. Totally. And when you were a kid, so what you were talking about amusing yourself when you were younger, Shonda Rhimes, the creator of Grey's Anatomy, she wrote in her book that she would always go in her pantry and create these stories from, you know, all the food in the pantry because she was like just so different when she was younger and that was where she felt and she became alive basically. So was your kind of amusement alone or was your amusement with the other peers? And how do they take that too? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I So I lived in kind of a remote-ish area where we, we lived in a city, but, you know, I went to school in the city and everything, but our house was sort of out in the hills a little bit. So there were no other kids around really. There were no neighbors, but there was one other kid who kind of lived in my area where the school bus would pick us both up, you know, on the same route. And so we became friends. And so he and I were really kind of a duo for, you know, middle school, high school. We spent a lot of time together and he was an only child. He didn't have any other kids around. My older siblings are were much older. And so they were out of the house by then. I was sort of de facto an only child. And so he and I kind of became, you know, kind of like the brothers that each of us never had. And we had very similar sensibilities. And I think they informed each other to, to some degree as well. Like he got into comics and then sort of got me into comics and, and so on. I would not say that we were, you know, alone, like we had friends and everything, but we were definitely sort of on each other's wavelength really, really clearly and precisely. Mm -hmm. But it was not like an enormous group of people that were all on the same wavelength. Like we were somewhat particular in our, our fixations. Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> was it, I mean, as we all had different kind of identities growing up, but I'm curious, like, because I always try to fit in, did your humor kind of make you stand out or did you feel like a little bit of an outcast? What was that like? 
I mean, I was always, you know, trying to be, you know, goofy and everything. I do, when I look back and I think about the things I did because I thought they were funny that other people did not find funny, like just being weird. Like when you're 14 or whatever and you have this thinking of like, I'm going to do this, this is going to go over great. Everyone's going to think that I'm the hilarious guy in the world. And then I'm looking back now, I'm like, oh yeah, I was the weird kid, the weird kid in the class. And everyone was like, oh, you know, I'm shying away a little bit. Like my calibration was off, I guess I should mm, say. Totally. Hmm. And so I think over time I've gotten better at like having a sense of my voice, I guess you could say, but it took a while to get to that point. And so I had a lot of creative outlets and I did a lot of things that, you know, I thought were fun at the time that I thought were, you know, pretty, pretty good for a whatever middle school or high schooler. And even as I got into comics, you know, as a young adult, I look back at the work I did, you know, back at the at the start and it's, you know, it's rough and it definitely shows that there was a lot of a long way to go from that point. And I think if we look back and we can identify the flaws in our previous work, it means that our sensibility has grown since then. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a positive thing. Yes, Boo. I literally listened to some of the first episodes of our podcast and I'm like, oh my God. Like, and we interviewed like one of the only black female CEOs in the Fortune 1000 companies. And like, literally I'm like, holy moly, like, she let us interview her. Anyways, she I get it. <laughs> so calibration voice. I'm curious about the balance for you in catering to an audience versus creating something that is your own. How do you think about that? And just because I think you can take it, let's add another angle to that question, which is like finding, finding your people, like finding people who will understand the thing that you think is also funny. Like how do you balance all of this? Yeah, I think, honestly, I think it used to be easier in the sort of like pre-fragmented social media like world, you know, okay. every now and then people will ask me about getting into comics or web comics or like, you know, how do you do this? And my answer is, I got no idea. I have no idea yeah. because I did it 15 years ago and like the internet was a different place then. And so like, if I were to start now, I guess I would say like, have an, even Instagram feels like old, old news now. Like you got to get on TikTok or you got to do this or that. What I did was I made things that I thought were interesting and funny, you know, to myself. And then gradually as people found it and I had the faith that whatever I found interesting, if that was my North star, then they would also find it interesting. And it's not always true, but what I wanted to do was it was sort of accumulate an audience that did find that true. Mm -hmm. And then therefore I could be unafraid to do anything that I thought was interesting because th these people have self-selected mm -hmm. as people who like the things that I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's where like organic growth of anything is really valuable because people have a choice in the things that they pay attention to. And if they choose to pay attention to you because they like it, then it gives you a lot of freedom to do other things that you also like. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize having a lot of friends and colleagues in, in sort of comics and online entertainment and other things that the thing I was doing hit certain people really hard and that's great. And it hit a little bit of a ceiling, I would say as well. And I feel like that is, just, you know, that's the way it is. I think there's probably more things I could have done to cultivate, you know, more of an audience. And I just kind of ran out of bandwidth, you know, to do more than, than I was. And that's fine. I think that there are people that speak more, directly to a niche in terms of an interest. And I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, that always, if someone is speaking a language that you and only a few other people understand, like you're really drawn to that. And I don't think I quite, you know, sunk into that. I could never quite figure out what that was for me. But I think I just, I got a little bit of a sense over time of what people would respond to. And then I always tried to push my standards beyond just that. And I think sometimes that that hurt me. And let me give you an example is like if I did a comic in year 12 or something and it's like, I understand how the cadence of comics works. Now I understand how the structure of a punchline works. I can do a thing that has a pretty normal punchline right here, but I don't find that interesting anymore. I'm going to try and go one level deeper or make it a little bit more ironic or do one other thing. And you lose a few people when you do that. But I kind of, I sort of satisfied my own desire to do something that I found interesting. And that gets exhausting after a while because you run like you have to keep reinventing this wheel over and over and over. You run out of wheels to make. I think it's a constant negotiation between remembering that the audience is they're not necessarily like looking for me to get so in the weeds that I overshoot the things that they find interesting. And so mm -hmm. I have to it's hard to be my own editor and sort of rein myself in. But I do feel like sometimes that yields like cleaner, better, more streamlined product. And so 
I'm always trying to overcomplicate. You ask anybody I've ever worked with, they say <laughs> that I, I'm always trying to add too many things, add too many details, make it harder than it has to be. And that's a really, really hard impulse for me to rein in creatively. But it's just because I, I want to make something great. And sometimes that means it's too ambitious. And sometimes, you know, it turns out to be something, something amazing. It's, it's not always necessary. And that's, that's a lesson I, I still have yet to learn. I want to dig into the like desire aspect because we're, we're taking it as given that you want this thing, but can you tell me more about like why push? Why, why, why move into abstractions that might lose some people? Like why? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I, I don't, I honestly, it's a negotiation with myself of like, who will care? Who will care besides you? And will you even care tomorrow? Oh, interesting. I don't know. I think it is something that I am it's like a perfect is the enemy of the good kind of thing that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get more disciplined about. And I just, Mm -hmm. I wish, I honestly wish that my standards were lower because I could do so much more work. Mm. (laughs) I wonder if you would enjoy it as much. Do you think, you know, if my standards were lower, then I feel like I would hit them a lot more easily. So maybe I would. So are you a competitive person then? That's a great question. I'm not really, honestly, I, yeah, I'm not really. Cool. Okay, so I'm curious, how has, so you're not competitive, you like to work hard. It seems like you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation how you like to create jokes that are new instead of you know what's been kind of said before. How has comedy kind of played a role in your life? Has it brought levity? Like, tell me about your personality then. Like, you said you're funny. Do you like hold a lot of your life in a levity attitude kind of thing, if that makes sense? Or are you more serious because you're really pensive about how to, you know, it's what's that balance? Yeah. Yeah, It's hard. You know, I used to do a lot more performing comedy. I don't need more ever since I had a kid. And so, you know, it kind of changes your available leisure time. I think one of the things that I really enjoy about having conversations like this about my work, honestly, is it reminds me of the, I have to take a moment to remind myself about the things that are fun because I feel like in isolation, you know, it's really easy to get wrapped up in my, in my own head, to get frustrated, to get a little bit grumpy, to get a little sour. I found that ever since I have my kid and then, you know, I also have a job now, which I didn't have a couple years ago and it takes up a lot of my time. So I have less time now for doing sort of personal creative work, but I'm spending a lot of time doing creative work, you know, for the job. And trying to negotiate all of that stuff sort of at the same time is, is really, really difficult in terms of time. And so I, I get really frustrated and I get really tired and I get really, really, all I can see are the things undone, the things, the things left undone. So am I a funny person in my day to day? You know, if you ask my wife, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> My kid thinks I'm, I'm hilarious though. So I do find this is actually, this is a good thing that I like to remind myself of as well. Is like, I know it's like an inherent part of my personality because it comes out with him and it's easy, it's easy to be funny with kids, but I think that I see my sense of humor in him really, really clearly. And so it makes me think of like when my parents would always used to say like, wow, you are, you know, you're a weird kid or you're a goofball or something. It's like, whatever. I just take that as given. But when I see it in my kid, I'm like, oh, this must have been what they saw. Hmm. This like little, little spark of energy, little spark of everything is a, is play acting or everything is make believe or everything is, you know, going for a joke. I see him try and he's four years old, but he's learning how to tell jokes to make me laugh because he understands how I'll react to things. And it's really, really interesting because I understand the wheels in his head because I did the yeah. same thing when I was his age. And I don't remember huh. that, but I recognize it. Yeah, yeah. And then that gets me back into that same mode. And, you know, I don't know. I'm a little bit harsh for like, I'm not going to laugh at anything. I'm going to laugh if it's funny. So I got to train him a little bit where it's like, <laughs> you know, comedy is about surprise. The third time mm-hmm. through, it's not funny. Like, that's, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to patronize mm-hmm. you. I'm going to respond honestly to the things that you're doing. And sometimes he is... You know, when when he earns it, you know, it's very satisfying for me as a proud papa. Well, I haven't got a laugh yet, but I got a smile out of you. So, I mean, <laughs> I feel like I'm winning. Go on. <laughs> so, earning it, do you do that with yourself? Is that a thing? Oh, interesting. I mean, I guess I must, right? Because I've just talked about how I have to, I have to work so hard to satisfy my own, my own taste. Mm-hmm. I rarely, if ever, make myself, like, laugh or anything. But what I do do is I push myself to like 
most of the writing I've done recently has not been for comics. It's been for, for games. So in my professional life here, I'm, I'm making games. This is a thing that I've been focusing on for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And the games involve a lot of writing. And I am sort of the person, and I'm not the only writer on the games, but I'm the person in charge of the creative direction of the games. And so it all has to pass up to my standard. And sometimes that involves getting together with the writers and sort of riffing and having a, having a great time and, and laughing about that. And sometimes it involves sitting there typing it and retyping it myself, you know, to kind of, you know, make sure it passes my own personal filter. And so I am happy to do that. I revel in, in that because it is enjoyable to me. It is enjoyable to make a thing that I'm proud of. Mm. And so knowing that there's a standard that like, I am responsible for this stuff sort of writ large, by which I mean like this line of games. And so whatever makes it out, I have to sign off on. And so therefore, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to, to make it something I'm proud of. And whether that means guiding other people or whether that means doing you know what parts of it myself or whether that means being really, really nitpicky about stuff. Mm-hmm. Insofar as you know, schedules and everything allow, I really enjoy that because I want to be proud of things. I want to have things on my shelf that I can I can look at and I can I can say like, hey, we worked really hard on this, and I just you know I can unreservedly you know champion this thing mm-hmm. in, yeah, to yeah. the rest of the world. Because I tell you, I've made stuff in the past that later on I look back on it and I'm like, I just don't know if I feel so proud of it anymore and therefore it makes it really hard from a professional standpoint to be like hey go buy this go go give me money for this because it's like mm-hmm. i'm a little sheepish about it mm-hmm. totally. and so i'm willing to put in that work early on so that i can have the rest of my life hopefully or at least until I, my taste you know accelerates further to to really champion that so i'm, I'm always curious because we watched the making of frozen 2 at disney but there are a lot of people in the room making these decisions and when you're talking about creative direction you have to be thinking about human psychology or how people are going to be receiving things. Like how, how does one build trust? How do you, how do you trust your gut enough to like know that it's going to lead to people buying or really enjoying the game? Like how does one cultivate that within them? Cause I have, I, I think I do in my own life in my own way in different areas, but I'm curious with your art, given that it's comedy and it's creative and something creative can be so big. Do you know what I'm, trying to ask here it's like how do you understand human psychology enough to know like oh well i'm going to be nitpicky because i know that my you know the users are going to find this funny or find this good does that make sense yeah yeah i mean you never really know you never get to know you only have data that you can use you know to to make inferences and so i'll I'll give you a little for instance let's say i make a comic that i labor over and i love it and i post it and nobody seems to react to it at all like with comics when things are posted online you have a certain sense of instant feedback Mm -hmm. and if i were to make two comics and one of them and, you know, and let's say I labored over them equally. I think there's always a cliche of like the thing you labor over is the thing that, you know, people don't like and the thing that you kind of crap mm-hmm. out is the thing people respond to. But let's even put mm-hmm. that aside. Two things that are labored over equally. And then one of them people don't respond to and one of them people really respond to. I think that what you take away from it is that like, I guess that second one's better. I guess mm-hmm. it must be, right? And I don't know that I have... Like I can have my preferences, but if I have a goal in mind, which is to sort of reach people and sort of have people respond to something, that gives me feedback. Mm-hmm. And so, which is, you know, I think you can take that in a very sort of mercenary way and say like, how can we make more of this? But I think you can also in a very organic way say like, what is the thing about this that was the appeal? And I think usually to go back to the cliche of like the ones less labored over are the ones that, that often, you know, get a good, a good response. It's often that they're simpler. It's often that they're more streamlined. It goes back to the lesson I'm trying to teach myself, you know, as I mentioned before, it's like, you don't necessarily need to make everything overwrought. And I think there's an energy in something simple that I think people really respond to just sort of as a general rule, you know? So, but I think the larger question or the answer to your question, maybe in a, in a more general way is that you just have to decide how you take whatever feedback you get and what sort of weight to give it. And, you know, it's very, very hard to do any kind of work in a vacuum. You have to have some kind of feedback. Mm-hmm. So have you ever felt like a sellout then? Cause you were mentioning like this might be better. And even though it might not be the one that you labored over, have you ever felt like a sellout at all? I have definitely written things with an audience in mind that were not like the purest expressions of my soul. Mm-hmm. But I think that's okay because it's still mm-hmm. something that I I felt like I I felt was a was a true statement, even if it was mm-hmm. not a statement that was like my truth personally. 
well, for everything that I said earlier about like, you know, I just got to satisfy my own, you know, my own, uh, my own standards and everything. I think it is possible to be a craftsperson creatively. Mm. I think it is possible to do things well in a mechanical sense that are still valuable pieces of art, even if not every one of them is your soul speaking from the clouds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I asked that because I've been a photographer for five or six years and like almost every photographer that I've kind of met, they're always like, you know, I want to make stuff that I'm excited about. And what's that balance, right? Between, you know, doing the things that the clients want and then also, you know, fulfilling your core desires. But, you know, I've done client work that I am very proud of that. I think, you know, they came to me because they wanted my particular point of view. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's actually this job that I have right now, making games. They hired me because they'd seen my work before, and they said, oh, you have a certain sensibility that we want. And whether it's it's a combination of a creative sensibility and just sort of like a, you know, the project management skill at a pretty high level, because I've been doing it for myself for so long at such scale yeah. that I'm, I now, you know, I have a certain expertise. I know how to make things. And so the fact that... They came to me means that the thing that I find interesting is also something they find interesting. So mm-hmm. it, I have filters. I, I have additional filters I have to pass the work through now. It's not just any anything that I want. It has to you know meet certain criteria. But then you know constraints are always very interesting to work within. So I'm very lucky. I know this is not always the case with you know in, in the arts, but I happen to have found a gig that is asking me to you know, use the same taste that I've cultivated for my own work. So mm-hmm. I think it is possible to do work for other people and to do work to spec that is still, you know, work that you can be proud of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You used a couple of times, well, in different ways, but you spoke of like the deep and truest expression of one's soul. How accessible is that? How do you go about finding and expressing that? I think it only comes out in retrospect. Oh, Interesting. I think this is something that they tell art students all the time is like, you cannot find your voice. You cannot find your style. You have to, you have to derive it from your work. And so Mm. you have to make the work first and then you go back and you look at the things that are in the work. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that's, that I find very interesting because I read a, like a summary or a review of Wondermark, sort of my comic strip writ large, that's sort of talking about the themes in the work. And they say, if you look at, you know, Wondermark over the years, these themes emerge, X, Y, and Z. And I looked at at that and I went, oh, oh, I guess you're right. I just thought that was life. But it turns out that it's, no, it was distinct to my work. Yeah, yeah. From the inside, it just looks like normal. Mm. And so it just looks like, you know, the filter that I see the world through, I can't see anything but that. Mm. But when someone else looks at my work externally, they see the thing that is unique to me. Mm-hmm. And so... I would have a very hard time telling you what the themes of my work were mm-hmm. besides just, oh, you know, whatever, everything. But then when someone looks at it and they go, oh, no, this work is always about this, 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 and this, because those are the things that are distinct yeah, um, yeah. about the way that you see the world. And so that that is the way to figure out what people are noticing is by looking at it externally somehow. And, you know, and you can do this with your own work, you know, visually. Like I think visual artists, when they look back and – you know, their work evolve over time. They see the things that sort of get accentuated or get repeated. Mm-hmm. Even still, it's very, very difficult to identify that, you know, oneself. But anyway, I think when you have that perspective, you know, either externally or sort of over time, then you can determine whether or not that is deliberate. Hmm. Do you like that those things are coming out? You know, is your work, I mentioned before about your audience being attracted to the things you find interesting. I think, I think if you make work that is for people like yourself, then you will attract people like yourself because those are the people who are interested in it. If you make work that jerks seem to like, this is a classic thing sort of in web comics. You make a work, make work that's very cynical or you make work that's very, you know, crass or you make work that, you know, whatever just has, has a certain point of view to it. The cynics and the, and the vulgarians and everything are attracted to it. And then now you have a fan base full of jerks, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, that's the work that attracted them. Yeah. Yeah. You put out the honey and you catch the flies or whatever it is. And so I think you can, the process of defining your, your voice or your point of view has to do with identifying it, number one, and then number two, making deliberate decisions about whether that's the thing that you want to be putting out there. And if not, then you do, then do something else. Now you have, again, you have feedback. You can correct from that. Yeah. People are taking something away from my work that I don't intend. Then that's, that's a signal to me. Sure. That makes sense. Hey there. Hi. Hello. 
If you've been enjoying and resonating with the energy here on Empowered Human Academy, then we'd love for you to apply to be a guest. We deeply believe that we all have wisdom and insight to share. So if the idea of opening a window into your aliveness lights you up inside, then we'd love to talk with you. Simply head over to eha.party, fill out a form, and we'll be in touch if it feels aligning. And if someone comes to mind that you'd love to hear on the podcast, send us your ideas. We'd love to hear from you. Again, just go to eha.party, fill out the form, and we'll keep on exploring together. Now, back to the conversation. Okay, so taking the idea of like what I consider to be everything is just is controlled by the lenses that I see through, and I can only determine what that lens consists of because of the feedback I get from other people. What have you learned about yourself via what people see and what you do? Oh, yeah, that's putting it together right there. <laughs> I have learned that I like to make things and fix things. So that's a theme that you'll see in my work is people trying to trying to invent things or people coming up with solutions for problems or people trying to do some elaborate thing to solve some simple problem. I see this reflected in my my life all the time. Again, hard hard for me to know whether that's an everyone thing or a me thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, you love that. There's a shelf that's sideways or I'm going to go make a new shelf for it or there's a, you know, right now my big thing I'm doing when I'm home alone and don't have any any kids to deal with is like a bunch of home repairs. Hmm. And so, you know, I have this fixation with like improving things and, and making things and crafting things and building things. And so I think that comes through in both the the content of my work, but also in the nature of my work. So Wondermark hmm. as a comic strip is actually built as a collage using illustrations from old books. That is an assemblage. That is, that is a crafting of one thing into another. Mm-hmm. And so I think as a central thesis of my life, it's, you know, I'm a guy who's trying to, who's trying to make things and trying to improve, Im- improve things. It's very broad, but I mean, that is, that is the through line. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for a while. Thank you. <laughs> Halfway through. Another question that I had to ask uh, that I wrote down and is sort of related to what's here, but I want to get it asked before I move on to the next thing. Are you your taste? Oh, interesting. It's hard because I think as a creator, this is not true of every creator, of course, but for me, mm-hmm. I'm pretty snobby and I'm pretty particular about the things that I like. And the things that I like are not always the things that other people sort of in my field like. I feel like I have slightly slightly more esoteric tastes than some and you know less esoteric tastes than others. In the course of my work making games here, I'm very much aware that the audience for a mass market game is probably not esoteric at all. Hmm. And yet I'm the person who's in charge of making the content. And so f- navigating those two things of like something that I think is interesting without it being inaccessible, mm-hmm. that's the compromise that I'm trying to reach. So it is absolutely true that I have worked on and made things that I would not myself consume. True. But yeah, so what? Like <laughs> I I think I yeah yeah totally totally yeah is that what, is it what, what you're after or is there is there more to it that gets close um, and I'm going to tweak the question slightly to get at another angle of it so earlier you said something 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 until my taste accelerates further and that oh, right, phrasing yeah. to me indicates that there's a separation like your taste is something you behold as it evolves over time it may not be you you may not have control over it maybe it's emerging by itself what's the relationship between you and your taste over time. Oh yeah, I mean that's just a nature. That's that that has to do with aging. That has to do with culture changing. You know, I think you know one of the things in particular that I think is often true when we look back at you know if you've been doing work long enough that you can look back at the early stuff and and be dissatisfied by it. You mm-hmm. can try and figure out why. Is it because now I know more and so I'm not as enthralled by by things as I might. You know, things are not as mm-hmm. novel to me. I understand the craft better, so I can see the flaws. You know, a little bit more aggressively. Is it because on a long enough timeline, has your understanding of the world changed such that the things that you found remarkable are no longer, they're not observations that you stand behind anymore. This is true. Mm-hmm. Like, I think this happens a lot, especially over the last 20 years where like, you know, there are jokes that I would not make today sure. that I made as a 23 year old, you know, and published on the internet. And that's, you know, that's 
because I was 23 and it was, you know, 2004 and Mm -hmm. now it's 2021 and I'm 40 years old. And, you know, everything about those between myself and the things I've seen and the world, you know, and all the people and that I've interacted with in the interim has sort of changed my perspective on what I think is, you know, mm-hmm. worth either worth commenting on or important or funny or yeah, yeah. offensive or not offensive or whatever. And so I think that evolution is necessary because otherwise you end up stuck in, you know, the taste of that is not in step with, sure. you know, the culture that we're all a part of. And so, hmm. I mean, there's a famous Ira Glass quote that I'm sure you're, you have, uh, have surely heard about the gap between your taste and your ability. And when your taste mm-hmm. outstrips your ability, you can, you're dissatisfied with your work because you understand that it could be better, but you can't figure out how to make it better. Hmm. And then as your ability catches up, you know, then your taste also accelerates. And so the gap persists. Hmm. So I think that has to do with craft a lot because again, like as you get better at doing something, your, your desire to do even more than, mm-hmm. you know, is pushed forward because you're no, you're, you're no longer satisfied with the thing that you have mastered. Yeah. But I think, I think evolving taste is part of evolving aging and living in, in the world. And I think the things that are novel were not are, once are no longer novel. It's like, it's like with my son. It's like, it's not surprising the third time. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm struck by the utility. In, so in the same way that like we can arrive at a measurement of ourselves via the feedback from other people on what we've done, looking at what we ourselves have done and like measuring that because we no longer are that per- particular creator. That's interesting. And I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, no, I hadn't either until you just said it. That's a really great idea. So it's a really great way of thinking like, I'm going to give you another another example. So we made, a, we made a book called Machine of Death. It's a collection of short stories. And it was uh, different people wrote stories that went into this book. People submitted stories and we chose them from the submissions and we published the book. We published the first book in 2010. A lot of people liked it. We did a second volume and people submitted stories again in 2011, 2012. We published the book in tw- the second volume in 2013. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of stories that we read for that book that we did not publish because there were a lot more submissions than we you know, could put in the book. And there were many of those stories that were actually quite good. And so, and a few of them we even bought the rights to, and then we were going to maybe try and publish a third volume, and we just never quite did that for various reasons. But every now and then, my co-editors and I, there's me and two other guys worked on that project, we talk about, do we want to do another book? Do we want to do another another volume? And, you know, we're all older and busier than we were back then. And so the prospect of like reading a bunch of submissions, which is an enormous process, an enormous undertaking, you know, is always very difficult to reconcile uh, and justify. And so we think like, well, what if we look back at those ones that we liked so much and publish them? You know, we already knew that we liked them. Mm-hmm. The thing is, it's 10 years later. And when you read a book from 20, you know, 11 or 12 or 13, and you know it was published then, you consider that work through a certain lens. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when the book is published in 2021, and there are stories in there that were written 10 years earlier, it's very likely for that same story to now feel dated because it, you know, the context around it has changed. And so, you know, when I look back at my work from 15 years ago and I apply that lens that you mentioned of like, well, does that mean that's who that person was back then? Mm-hmm. I have to remember that, you know, the lens I'm looking at it through is the future when my taste is different. I think you have to apply that like handicap to a certain degree in your judgments of the past because, you know, you, everything has grown since that time. And so you cannot be, it's unfair to hold yourself to the standards of the future. For sure. No, that totally makes sense. Okay. I've got a whole new subject that I want to open up and I'm going to get Wait. there via complicated segue. So <laughs> I'm going to do a quick segue too. No, I'm going to do a quick, uh, just point. I might um, actually just point. Down That's fine. Then. Okay. I understand why people like keep up with the Joneses now because they're just bored with the old stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's kind of old. And also, every time I watch a, two, a movie from 2010 or 2009, I'm like, ooh, what like gay joke is not going to be cool? Or like, what misogynistic like line is someone going to say? It's like really a cringy kind of. I'm like, ooh, did we allow this? Like, I was in college then. Like, damn. Like, no wonder why I was in the closet. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, there's stuff that, you know, that is just... I think I feel like every couple of months somebody points out like, oh, hey, remember this thing that we all liked that we just that just skated over a lot of our heads or we just felt like it was part of the culture. But like, holy crap, like it is not okay. Totally, totally. Okay, so as as somebody who I make things in my own ways, I am a a creator of my own. And 
the notion that there's a shelf life on created work in general or art or whatever is briefly disconcerting to me because like not only, you know, fear of uh, judgment on things that I have done, that's actually not really it. It's more of a like losing. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's the question of faith in my ability to continue making things that are like relevant and good for some definition of good. And hence the segue. My question to you is about faith in your faith generally, honestly. And I'm coming at this from the angle of like faith in your ability to continue executing on whatever it is you are, whoever you are, but also going way back to like when you stepped into this craft in the first place, faith that you would find, like, as you said earlier, that you would find your people or that your people would find you and that you would have that audience. Where does the assurance that there's going to be a viable tomorrow come from? Uh, From naivete. So when I started, I had never heard the word webcomics. When I started making comics, it was just for fun. And there was not a thing of on the internet that was a, a model I mean, there were had there were web comics on the internet, you know, before I did mine, certainly, but it was not really, it was not a populated field the way it became later. I don't know how familiar you are or aren't with the sort of like you know ecosystem of web comics, but at the time when I started, it was pretty easy to kind of rise to the attention of the people who were interested in web comics because there just weren't all that many. I mean, there were some, but there weren't all that many that were very good, and so. And a lot of them were very niche. They were for like gamers or they were for like particular subcultures or, you know, the craft was just not, not super great. And you could do something that was kind of novel and you could, you could really find an audience, at least a kind of a, sort of a core audience, you know, fairly, fairly quickly. And then whether they stuck around, of course, it just is a reflection on the quality of your, of your work. But there was not a sense of what the ambition was because there was no model to follow that I was really was really aware of. And I think the people that that came later and they saw people who were doing webcomic professionally, I think it set them up for a set of expectations that were very hard to mm-hmm. to meet. Like there's an impatience that mm-hmm. I think arose around like, okay, well then when when am I gonna get there? When am I gonna be successful? When am I gonna get to this level or that level or have a book or have a Kickstarter or have a merchandise or whatever it is? Any of the sort of benchmarks that they felt, you know, were the, the thing that that dictated success. Mm-hmm. Or even the notion that success in terms of like uh, you know, this can be my income was possible, was something that they were seeing other people accomplish and then comparing themselves to. And, you know, it takes 10 years to really get to a point of stability with, with a career like that. That's what I found. And I feel like that I have colleagues that could, that could also say the same. With a lot of careers, I feel like. Yeah. And so when you're starting and you see people who are above you or have, a, have achieved a certain level, I think there's an impatience. And so I think what I benefited from personally, I can't speak for anyone else, but what I, so I benefited, what I benefited from was I didn't know any of that stuff. There was no model that I could really look at that I could project myself onto. I was just doing it for fun. And then by the time I started sort of getting on people's radar and I started figuring out what the landscape was. I had been doing it for a couple of years. So I had some of my craft behind me already. And so I wasn't working fully in a vacuum because I, I had already like had an archive that people could like look at and they could mm-hmm. you know, see that I had been doing it for a while and so on. So I think it is very powerful. The notion that you don't, if you don't know something is difficult or impossible, it's much easier to do it. And the more you know about how difficult or impossible it is, the harder it is to figure out how how you can do it because it is such a uh, it feels like such a challenge. And so the thing that I try and remind myself, and it, it, the, the the particulars of your question were like, how can you have an assurance that you will you know be creative and you know for the long haul or whatever? And I mean, I don't know. You just have to assert that that's the case, hmm. but you never need to be creative for the long haul. You just need to be creative one more time. You know, one more time is easy. A million times is very difficult, but you never get, you can't do the second thing. You only can do the first thing. So you just do the, the, the next thing. And when you do the next thing, then you can change your mind if you want. But you know, the next thing is easy. And the, the, the hundred things in a row is difficult. So you don't think about that. Well, and the next thing informs the next thing, which informs the next thing. And then you're at like the 10th next thing, and it could be totally different than what you thought of about the first next thing. Absolutely. In fact, that's a pleasure, in my opinion, is that like when you have ambitions for like, I'm going to do 10 things. And then by the time you get to thing number three, you're like, this sucks. I don't want to do four through nine. I'm going to do this whole other thing. That's good because it means that you have improved on your idea. 
So how do you balance that with being a creative director then, knowing that you kind of have to know the strategy of your project? So with the work I'm doing in games, there is an external force. And that is that I have a boss who tells me, hey, how's it going? Well, how's your schedule looking? Because there's other people who are building like sales projections based on me telling them that we're going to have a thing created by a certain time. And in fact, right now, there's a lot of logistical problems with like global shipping right now, just as of, yeah. just, oh, indeed. you know, for the record. Totally. And so <laughs> it's really screwing up my timetables. It sucks. It's, I'm having a lot of awkward conversations about it based on things I said would happen, you know, over the course of the year. And the only reason that's a problem is that we made a decision that, you know, other things would sort of depend on the schedule and so on. If there were no schedule, we could let things take the time they take, have a great time. You know, things arrive, you know, whenever they do, when we all just sort of have fun. But there's these external forces that sort of make the constraints have to affect the work in that way. And so the, the part of it that I can control is the, is the labor of the creative, like, okay, well, we're going to put in a couple extra hours to get this done, or we got to call this done because we don't have time to rework it or whatever. And like figuring out what's the minimum bar it can clear to like still satisfy that taste, you know, and that sort of refinement while still, while not taking extra time that is unnecessary yeah. is the thing that I'm trying to define like basically every day and finding people that sort of, we can get on the same wavelength, you know, as far as those expectations go. There have been people that I've worked with in the past that were talented in their own way, but we could never get on the same wavelength of like, okay, well, if I have to give you a hundred thousand notes on everything, then it's just not efficient. It's just not working in that way. And so, you know, it's a, the management side of it becomes important and the sort of, you know, finding the people and trying to get on those shared sensibilities is a, is a whole part of it. I think working independently is very different because it, you know, the, the pressures are different. And I think, Hmm. I mean, honestly, like right now for my work, I'm in a very liminal space. uh, And what I mean by that is that, the thing that has a deadline in my life is this professional work. It's very interesting and I'm, I'm very fulfilled by it. But the, my independent work no longer has an income pressure. And so it's less pressing. It's harder to make time for. And before, when I was just working for myself, that pressure was, I have to make money so my family does not starve. You know, that dictated the, the choice of the things that I did and the order I did them in and the, the scale I, I did them at. And sometimes it worked out and sometimes it was challenging. If it's not strictly a hobby, then there's always going to be that pressure. And if it is a hobby then and that pressure is removed, then what I have found, at least personally, it sometimes is hard to persist with because... Yeah. I don't know. I haven't quite solved that one yet mm. because, you know, I want to do comics uh, because I think they're fun and I think people are interested in them and I want to keep them interested, but yeah, there's only so many hours in the day. You walked confidently right into the question that I was going to ask about. So bravo. Firstly, it was about, well, the question was going to be like, where, where in your lived experience are you free of external forces? And that's, that's kind of a leading question. Cause it's like, I'm implying that that's a good thing. So I'm going to tweak the question and ask you, where do you find freedom and what does that mean? I guess, you know, I still have a conduit to an audience that has to, you know, that's following my comics and there's, and that's in different, that takes different forms. So it's the comics, uh, actual comics that they make, or like if I have a blog on the site or, you know, I'm on social media or whatever. Mm -hmm. In those cases I can say or do, you know, whatever I find interesting. And the, the challenge honestly is just, you know, making something that's good takes time. I've got, you know, a lot more ambition than I have energy to, to sit and make things. And so the things that do end up sort of bubbling out of it are either things that are easy or things that are important. Hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I'm a guy that has a website that people, people go to occasionally. And so I can put whatever I want on, on that website. It's a thing that I have complete total freedom if I had nothing else to do, I'd put lots of things on it, <laughs> I guess. Is, that, that, that's all I have to say about it. I yeah, think, cool. uh, I think it's there if I, if I want it. And I think the, you know, as, as long as people will pay attention to it, I'll, I'll try and give them things to enjoy there. Yeah. Hmm. You've got me thinking now about like, like easy, hard, important, not important. And, yeah, well, yeah, and that's yeah. kind of like connected to what you were talking about earlier. Like the piece of work that like is part of your soul and the piece that's really easy and then people like it. That's, I feel like that's all kind of in the same family. Yeah. Yeah. David, we 
are wrapping up this conversation and it's it's gone by so fast. I really I'm my mind's just like really on fire and I oh, love yeah. it. So we end off each episode with two questions. The first question is um what does an empowered David look like and feel like? I will say, I don't want to make this too like, you know, materialistic or whatever, but as a person that has was self-employed for, you know, 15 years and then recently got a job, there's a lot of empowerment and security. And I feel like there are a lot of stresses in life that come about from from worry. And I'm enormously grateful at the moment that, you know, I, I don't feel like anyone in my family is going to starve. I, I just don't. It just doesn't seem likely. And I don't think ever that would really happen. But, you know, there are definitely additional stresses that arise when things are insecure. And this is true for, you know, we, this is a well-known fact. At this exact moment, you know, in 2021, I'm feeling pretty secure. And so that, I think, gives me a sense of empowerment because it lets my mind be a little free of that of that one thing. Yeah. yeah. That's really awesome. And our closing question, what do you know for sure? I know that I feel like an easy answer here is that I know that whatever I know I don't is less than I'll know in the future. Hmm. But I feel like that's a cop out. I know that I can trust myself to figure out what's next, even if I don't know it now. I know that this uh, whole idea of like, you don't need to know the whole path. You just need to know the next step. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to think about like, you know, the future and all this uncertainty. And I do think you have to have plans and, and you know, you have to have sort of an ambition, but I, I feel like every single time in my life when I haven't been sure what to do, I've been able to figure it out. So as of now, so far, I'm, I'm pretty confident in that. And I think that's, that's something I'm, proud of myself for. That's amazing. David, you're so cool. We should be friends. Listeners, go check out all of his work. It's really, really stunning. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. This has been really fun. For those of you who are not watching on YouTube, the places where Abe and I spontaneously start dancing in our seats is, it's just a good sign. So thank you for your time, David. I appreciate (laughs) it. Thank you you so much, David. It's been my pleasure. Thank you both. Y'all, the whole point of everything is to open up ourselves and all the fullness that we're made for, and then to create, create, create with everything that is real and true and bright. That's the work of a life. That's what we're working on. And you're here because you feel that for yourself, too. And we believe in you completely. And hey, if you want to take a deeper dive, then head over to Apple Podcasts and sign up for a subscription, giving you access to exclusive bonus content. We've recorded a companion episode where we digest the themes of this week's conversation and swap art recommendations, sharing what's giving us life at the moment. It's a lot of fun. We've also put together a free downloadable you'll find at empoweredhumanacademy.com with a table question, journal prompt, and action step to bring the energy of today's episode home to your own life. And if you're resonating with the exploration that we're doing here, if these interviews have meant something to you, then we'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us spread the word and get these episodes out to more people. Thank you for being here, for choosing to spend some time with us. Now get out there and do something that feels exactly like you, and we'll do the same. And for us, that includes bringing you the next conversation. Until then, stay close to your heart, to your breath, and to your power. Have an amazing, amazing day.